outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. Today's episode is all about how and why you need to give yourself as many ambush options as you can. Here's the thing, guys. It's go time. This is the time of year where if you're going to get something accomplished deer-wise, you better get on it. People are going to be arrowing velvet bucks this week with every passing day opening up new seasons across the country. It's deer season, or damn near, and there is this thing we should all consider to be more successful as deer hunters. Our options. How mobile are we? How many stand sets do we have up? How many blinds do we have brushed in? The more, the freaking merrier, my friends, which is what this episode is all about. I grew up in a little dairy farming community in southeastern Minnesota. There were benefits to that lifestyle for sure. You knew damn near everyone in your community. And if you didn't directly know them, you knew of them. We had one stoplight, so traffic wasn't something we planned around. And while you couldn't order a pizza and have it delivered for at least most of my childhood, I know you could visit the small town staples like Dairy Queen and get a burger and a blizzard. We worked on farms in the summer, baling hay mostly, and at least for much of my youth, no one cared if they looked out in the back pasture and saw some kids fishing smallies or trout in the stream that wound its way across their land. Now, of course, this is a nostalgic look back at the good things about small town life. The bad thing, if I'm being totally honest at least, was that the options for a girlfriend were pretty limited. 
my graduating class consisted of like 73 people, less than half of which sported XX chromosomes. Competition for a limited resource is always, well, interesting. And it wasn't until my first few days at Winona State University that I realized how nice it is to have a lot of options. One elevator ride up to the 10th floor of Sheehan Hall, which is a women's dorm, was like stepping from a life of poverty and famine to one of unimaginable riches. Options are a good thing. Not only does this apply to running college kids, but running bucks as well. I honestly think one of the big things that holds an awful lot of hunters back is limited ambush options. Or put it a better way, how we limited ourselves with everything we do as far as where we want to sit or where we're gonna sit to wait for a deer to come by. Now, I got a Wired to Hunt episode coming out here shortly with the one and only Andy May, where he describes getting creative with his stands to make a killer spot work when conventional methods just wouldn't cut it. Now, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's a perfect example of why being open to as many ambush options as possible is often what separates the big buck killers from the rest. Now, options can be broken into two main categories. You've got your mobile, you know, and then you've got your set it and forget it, basically. We all know the mobile options. Saddles are the big one these days. But you can opt for a lightweight stand and sticks or a climbing stand, or you can throw on a ghillie suit and tuck into a deadfall somewhere. Mobile has a lot of different ways you can do it. Now, the set it, forget it options are anything from heavier hang-on stands to ladder stands to box blinds. Depending on whether you're hunting the family farm or attract to public land, your options will be dictated by the type of ground, first and foremost. The public land hunter isn't likely to spend several grand on a tower blind and then use their tractor to put it up on the best spot of open to all ground. Although I, I have to say, some of the stands that people put up on public land do blow my mind. In Wisconsin, where I hunt, you're not even allowed to leave up stands overnight on some parcels, yet I can find double ladder stands without too much trouble. Ladder stands, I might add, that don't appear to be going up and down with each rotation of the earth. Anyway, that's an obvious point. You first have to figure out what kind of ambush sites you can use on where you hunt. But this is also a great argument for not just settling for one spot either. Over there in Wisconsin where I hunt, I own two properties. I put up blinds in the summer for the girls, and I have several stands I put up for season-long bow hunting. Down the road, you can find thousands upon thousands of acres of public land. This is a much different scenario than my private ground and demands a mobile setup. Interestingly, the dying art of using a climbing stand often comes into play on those tracks because some of them are owned by timber companies, which leave seed trees that are often just straight-trunked, perfect-for-climbing-stand type of trees. They're also often located along logging roads and other areas you might expect a whitetail to walk on. The key to those trees and that mostly unpopular style of mobile hunting is knowing where those trees are and when you'd use them with a climber. This isn't something I necessarily always want to figure out in the moment. The lesson here kind of transcends climbing stance too. If you're into saddles and you think they give you tons and tons of options, well, you're right. But the dominant style of thought around saddles and other mobile strategies is to slip in, find some amazing big buck sign, silently ascend, and then shoot a buck in his lungs as he yawns, stretches, and stands up in his bed. Now that can work, but it's also not a bad idea to know where you might want to go hunt throughout the season and what trees you might want to ascend into. When you think about setting stands on a private piece where you can leave them all fall, it's usually about breaking them up to cover different parts of the season. 
You might set a blind on a bean field or a food plot for the early season. Then a couple of stands in the thicker cover for mid-season when the leaves start to fall and the bucks go into October mode. You'll probably also hang a stand or two for the rut, wherever you can find a terrain trap on your hunting grounds. This strategy should address the changes in deer movement up until the post-rut, late-season hunts anyway. Mobile hunters would be well-served to think that way as well, even if they can't go out in the late summer and set things up for a season-long plan. This is one of the often unspoken aspects of being a serious deer scouter. If you winter scout, spring scout, and summer scout, and then in-season scout, man, you're filling the database with a lot of good data points. And not only do they represent good hunting spots or potentially good hunting spots anyway, but they also represent a timeline of potentially action-filled hunts throughout the whole season. When you scout in the late winter, I don't know, you might find a bang and rub line leading from a bench on a ridge line down to a creek bottom. You might find a monster bed tucked into an alder thicket, or you might find a series of washouts that culminate in one good crossing at the bottom, where if a deer wants to go from one side to the other, that's about their only option. All of those individually are great finds. They are all wins in my book, but you start putting a few of them together on a specific property, and now you're in business. Now you're looking at a full season's worth of spots, and when you use that in conjunction with what you're seeing while actually hunting, you're really onto something. But there's a caveat to this stuff, which brings us back to that mention of Andy May at the beginning of the episode. A spoiler alert here, but Andy's story involves using a small stepladder and not a great stand tree to set up and hunt a spot that he felt just needed to be hunted. This is an important lesson, my friends. When I talk about options, I mean two things scouting to find as many good hunting locations as possible, but also having a way to hunt just about any spot you can find. This is honestly one of the biggest hangups most of us have, and I run into it all the time and often have to make concessions of some sort to make a spot work. Now take a little area on a farm I hunt in southeastern Minnesota, for example. It's a few acres on one side of a trout stream where deer come and go from an 80-acre sanctuary that it borders. But because there are only a few acres on that side I can hunt, I'm really limited with wind direction. I'm really limited with access, too. But the deer are there. They use it a lot. And they use it all season. And it can be an absolute cruiser fest during the rut. The trees in the spot are okay, but the ground cover is almost non-existent. So what do you do? You hang a stand in the best tree you can, high, because there isn't much cover, and you hope they take the trails that are upwind and not downwind. It's not ideal because some take trails where they're going to get you and that's just the name of the game. But that spot needs to be hunted and there are only so many ways to do it. Another example to highlight this happened to me in North Dakota like, I don't know, five or six years ago. The bucks were crossing a little Missouri River in multiple spots with the low flow. They didn't really need to cross on any given trail and it seemed like the movement was actually pretty random. But it wasn't, because it rarely ever is. They were actually using three different trails, all within about a quarter of a mile stretch. One trail seemed to be really popular, likely because it led right to a sagging low spot in a fence. It also took the deer right through a section of the bank that hasn't had a suitable stand tree in it since Teddy Roosevelt was falling in love with that broken terrain. That was some time ago, my friends. Due to extreme winds and some desperation, I decided to try to set up and kill a buck on that trail, even though I had to leave my stands at camp. 
The best option was the skeleton of a long dead cottonwood that fell back to earth amongst a patch of sagebrush. When I crawled in there, after a quick rattlesnake check, I realized two things. The first was that I was going to have to do my best Puxatani Phil impression and just barely poke my head about the cover. The second was that it was a pretty damn good natural blind, provided I could stay low enough. Well, I did. And when a familiar group of does and one buck crossed the river, several of them got to blowgun range before the buck made his way down the trail. Now, he never busted me drawing, and neither did his girlfriends, which was a miracle. Now, maybe because they didn't expect anyone to be right there. I don't know. I do know that it was a hunt saver, mostly because I decided I'd rather figure out a way to hunt that spot than not. Now, this is a necessity when you travel a lot to hunt public land. You just don't have the option to set stands ahead of time. At least you almost never do. And you're usually on a pretty limited schedule. Not hunting isn't an option, so you have to try to make things work for you. It's easy to understand that when you have an expensive non-resident tag in your pocket and four days to get it done. But the same message applies to really all of our hunts, even if we don't think we need to listen to it because we've bow hunted the same family ground since we were 12. This idea plays off as something I fully believe in, that it's better to go to the deer than ask the deer to come to us. If the bucks show you that they want to be in a gnarly creek bottom or a cattail slough and not the dreamy patch of deciduous forest that has 2,000 perfect stand trees in it, then the bucks are telling you everything you need to know and really how you got to hunt them. Well, not really. You still have to figure out how to hunt those environments, which is a real challenge. And surprise, surprise, probably a pretty good reason why the bucks are there. You can try to make it work with your chosen ambush method, or you can consider your options and try to get creative. Let's take the cattail slough, for example. You could pick the next closest cover with trees and put up a standard saddle, but that might take you so far away from the bucks want to be that you're essentially a long-range observer with a hope in your heart and deer tags that will most likely go unfilled. Or you could get to that edge somehow and hunt them. Maybe that's a natural blind in a patch of willows or sumac, or maybe it's a pop-up blind set up to shoot where a trail not only enters the cattails, but also intersects with the inevitable trail that's going to parallel the outside edge of that cover. Maybe you can wait for a windy or a rainy day and try to glass a buck heading into the cattails to see where he beds. And if the conditions really favor you, you might maybe, and this is a big, big, big maybe, be able to sneak in and shoot him where he stands in his bed. Or hell, you might pick up a lightweight tripod stand and set it up on the edge. While these options aren't great for bow hunting and the close range game it involves, that can be a super effective strategy for gun hunting. Just getting to the 10-foot level so you have a better shot angle and a view of the cover, that can be a real game changer. And I think this is a lost opportunity with a lot of gun hunters. So I'll say this. Think about your preferred ambush style or styles. Think about how often you use them and in what spots you use them. But also think about the spots you want to hunt where you just don't think that style is feasible. Is there another way to get it done that doesn't involve that cushy ladder stand you really want to sit in? It might be as simple as bringing in pruners in a cushion and hunting from a natural blind. While the visibility will be limited compared to being in a tree, you can often set up right where you need to with this style. And when the deer do show up, the shot opportunities are usually pretty sweet. Or maybe you just feel like you burn out your best areas too quickly and would like to spread out the pressure. This is an important one especially for a lot of us who might have permission to hunt small parcels. If you only give yourself 20 or 30 acres to hunt an entire season, you're ripe for partial or total burnout. Even if you only hunt a couple days each week, 
tacking on new ambush styles and finding some spots on the public land that is a half hour away can be a huge benefit here. Now I'll offer this as a parting thought to piggyback onto this as well. Oftentimes the willingness to give ourselves a few more options is the best way to remedy our own mistakes. We always think of it in terms of out hunting the deer and the other hunters, which is certainly true. But when it comes to how deer learn about us and our tendencies and just where we like to park and what stands we love to hunt, we give them just about everything they need to not get killed by us. A few more options, both in stand and blind sites, and the willingness to mix up strategies to be able to hunt wherever their deer demanded of us can really be the difference maker. This is something you hear about a lot in states that allow baiting, particularly states that allow automated feeders. Good luck finding someone who runs a feeder like that who also doesn't have a camera on it and a stand or a blind set up 20 yards away. But the corn that that little feeder throws out isn't as big of a draw to mature bucks as survival is. And there's nothing with more gravity for hunters than the thought of sitting right where the feeder is going to throw a cup or two of corn on the ground for the critters. But a buck with a few seasons under his belt is probably pretty wise to that trap. While he may not come in with the does and scrappers during daylight, he'll often hang out a ways back and let things get real dark and less dangerous. The hunter who recognizes this could back up into the thick stuff where the rubs are and set up a different way to kill that unkillable feeder buck. It happens every year. It happens in far more scenarios than just this example. So give yourself some options, my friends. Think about your preferred hunting style. What you have set up for the season. Think about all that stuff and how you can hunt more effectively and more efficiently by giving yourself some more ground to hunt and more ways in which to hunt it. That's it for this week, my dear obsessed friends. I'm Tony Peterson. This has been the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, thank you so much for listening. All of us here at Meat Eater, Wired to Hunt, really, really appreciate it. And if you need a little bit more White Hill wisdom, you can head on over to our Wired to Hunt YouTube channel to watch a ton of videos that Mark and I produce based around all kinds of how-to strategies and techniques. Or you can head on over to themediator.com slash wired and see tons of articles covering all kinds of topics around deer hunting. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.